welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today, instead of Howard Hendricks, we feature his wife, Jean Hendricks. As his teaching and leading ministry grew, Professor Hendricks was quick to give God credit, commend his wife, and referred to their husband-wife team as One Flesh, One Ministry. Today, Jean Hendricks presents a talk on The Wife in Your Life. The following material is copywritten by and provided courtesy of the Moody Bible Institute. When I was, when I was a very little girl, I attended regularly a very prim, proper, and predictable church. Third row from the front left, dad at the end, then mom, then me, and then my big sister. The unspoken rule, which was always enforced, was there was to be no drawing, no writing, drawing, reading, anything of distraction. The idea was that you were to absorb piety. This was a place where God spoke to you and you spoke to God. Well, I can never remember that I got God tuned in very well on my wavelength, but I did say a few things to him in those days. I remember that I would look at the very <clears throat> Baroque stained glass voice up there in the front with the exaggerated gestures, and I said to myself, or rather to God, Lord, if I do have to get married, and I hope maybe I won't, I do not want to marry a preacher type. <laughs> and the second thing I said to God was, <clears throat> after looking at all of those women who sat in the same seat wearing the same hat, saying the same thing week after week, Lord, if it's okay with you, I would just like to present my requisition now that I could have an interesting life. Well, whether I was tuned into God or not, he was certainly tuned into me because he has given me the most wonderful husband in the world and my life has been so interesting I can hardly stand it. <laughs> and when he told me that I had been invited to be a part of this conference, I immediately said, sweetheart, I think there's been a mistake, uh, certainly not the pastor's conference. He said, oh, yes. And I said, well, it's, it's obviously just a little sidebar seminar for any women who happen to be there. He said, no, this will be to the men. And then I began thinking, why? And then it occurred to me, maybe they just wanted to check up on him <laughs> to see if he was doing his homework. He's been coming here year after year telling men that they are supposed to take care of their wives and families. And so I'm here to report that he has been doing his job. <laughs> but seriously, I am humbled to be here to represent your wife and I want to talk to you, or I would say chat with you a few minutes this morning about the wife in your life. Uh, I want you to feel something. I want you to feel a throbbing heartbeat 
of a woman in your life. And so perhaps hearing it from a woman will make that a little more real. The Protestant Reformation of the 16th century placed on local church pastors a dual responsibility of shepherding the flock and also exercising leadership in their own homes as husbands and fathers. Luther's theology held that the husband-wife relationship was the core unit of the community. It was the heart of society, and it was the most fundamental thing to be given attention. Dr. Steve Osmond, the renowned history professor and uh, uh, specialist in the Reformation, has said that women in the cloisters at that period of history were there mostly against their will. And so when the Reformation occurred, four things happened to the world. First of all, it liberated women. Secondly, it normalized male and female relationships. Thirdly, it was a means for reproducing godly families. And fourthly, it set a precedent for Christian leadership which extends through to the day in which we live. The fact is that probably every one of the pastors in this room today have received formal training for what they are doing. But if I were to take a poll of your wives, and I have taken many of these in pastors' wives' conferences, and many times there is not one woman who can put up her hand and say that she has received any formalized training for the job she is counted upon to do. (coughs) Few people have addressed this subject, even though it causes panic in the heart of almost every woman who goes into the ministry with her husband. They've not defined the place of the pastor's wife. Therefore, it has become largely a do-it-yourself, learn-on-location, write-your-own-job-description assignment. The pastor has this balancing act. He has the flock. He has his family. The pastor's wife also has a balancing act because she is at one time part of the laity of the church, but she is also married to and co-partner with the professional clergy. She is, as I like to say, ordained by proxy. She is, uh, socially, she's a hybrid. She is a minister, but without portfolio. And most pastor's wives that I know are very gracious, they're very capable and happy and heroic women. and I have been pleased and privileged to be associated with them, but they have had to earn the right to be taken seriously in many, many places. There are two flashpoints or dangers that I would like to mention to you from a woman's standpoint today. Uh, The first one is managing stress. I was in a national leaders conference for women just recently with an unstructured agenda and the facilitator said, now what shall we discuss that is of most interest and importance to women in ministry? And immediately, spontaneously from around the room, everybody began to say, stress, stress, stress. The second flashpoint And just to follow uh, good old family tradition, I'm alliterating this. Uh, uh, 
The second one is spiritual statesmanship. Stress and statesmanship. A study was done at Mount Sinai Hospital a few years ago studying stress in women because apparently it affects them differently, affects us differently. Uh, the female sex has four main characteristics which we exhibit when we are under stress. The first one is depression. And uh, it comes about as an overflow of emotion. Probably many of you have had a woman in your office and she's crying. And you say to her, why are you crying? And she says, I don't know why I'm crying. Well, that undoes a man. I mean, it's worse than having the dog chew up your sermon notes on Saturday night. <laughs> I, it, it, is, it undoes the male psyche to have a woman crying, and yet it is very typical of a woman who is under stress. The second one is disorganization. She can't remember what she's doing and why she's doing it. Everything gets all mixed up. And I can attest to this because I go to a lot of women's conferences and women are under stress. They pick me up at the airport and I can't tell you how many times we've gotten lost on the way to the church because the driver is under stress. She's disorganized. The third one is in the area of decision-making difficulty. She wastes time standing trying to decide how to shop, what to buy. She stands in the bedroom trying to decide what to put on. She stands in the kitchen trying to decide what to have for dinner. Um, this is uh, probably why uh, souvenir shops were invented around the world. Uh, this decision-making is made for you. I had no idea that I needed a Bulgarian ballerina until I saw her there in the souvenir shop and suddenly I needed her. My decision was made for me. Uh, it caters to women in stress. But the fourth one, and probably the most lethal, is overdependency. A woman who is under stress tends to lean more and more. She begins to intensify that by, with fantasies of being rescued. She's screaming for help. And I know that when I have leaned a little bit too hard on my husband, I'm so thankful for the man God gave me. Because when I get too close to him in this kind of a over-dependency, there's a little light that goes on. And it start, nobody can see this but me, but it flashes and it says, I am not the answer to your prayer. <laughs> Seriously, I am very glad that God gave me a husband who knows where to send me. You see, when, when God dropped this theologian into my life, I thought, I've got it made, I've got all these questions, he's got all the answers, we're in business. But I discovered very quickly that I had married a teacher and teachers never give you the answers. They just say, <laughs> they just say, here's the way to the library. Well, <clears throat> this man that I have said, here is the Bible, sweetheart, 
Anything your little mind can devise, you can find the answer if you look long enough. <laughs> and while at first I was a little put off by that, I realize now that that was the best thing that could have happened to me. And so I recommend it to you, husbands, because it has changed my life totally. For example, as I am in the throes of stress and I'm looking into the scriptures, I come upon Psalm 77. Now, the writer in me years ago started assigning titles to all of the Psalms. And I, the title for Psalm 77 is What to Do in Spiritual Blackout. And this man, Asaph, was really in anguish. You've been there, and I've been there. And he tells God exactly how it is. He says, I cried out to God for help. I cried out. I was in distress. I stretched out my hands. My soul refused to be comforted. I remembered you, O oh God. I groaned. I mused, and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. He is miserable. But the thing that I like about it then is that he comes out of this expression of anguish into six very penetrating questions. He was not afraid to ask God the hard questions. And he asks six of them. Um, he says, will the Lord reject me forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in his anger withheld his compassion? In other words, I feel so abandoned. I feel so miserable. And I don't know what to do, God. But here I am. And you are my only hope. And the world that we live in needs that kind of reality. The great thing about this psalm is that after he expresses this to God... Then he is, his mind goes into three thought processes which have been so helpful to me. He remembered, he meditated, and he talked about the deeds of God. And it was only as he got that objective proof that God is who he says he is that the power began to return in his life. Commenting on Romans 5.3, that tribulation worketh patience. John Calvin said that um, the saints have to suffer. I mean, this is part of what God has written for us in his curriculum. And he says that no patience would result unless there had been a feeling of pain. Those who do not learn patience do not make good progress. And so here I am in this grandmother age of life, and I look back to think that of all the stress that God has allowed in my life, that I've had a husband who moved me toward the scriptures and helped me to understand that there is relief from stress. It's a very real relief because it comes with facing it, thinking through it, and remembering that God is in control. And so I can relax, and I can truly say that I have the peace of God, which passes understanding. I talk with a little, little. You know, get my age, you call every young girl little. But a young pastor's wife in California, she and her husband are very capable in the church where they have served. But the husband has been treated very shabbily 
by those people. But Tracy is just smooth as glass because she embodies this. She said to me, I don't have to worry. My husband and I are together on this. We know that God has orchestrated all of this, and she's able to kind of float above it and not allow it to get her down. But that second flashpoint, that thing about developing spiritual statesmanship, that's where the man truly comes in. When it is stress, then it's something I have to handle. But God has given us as wives husbands, and they are to be statesmen in our lives. Webster calls a statesman one who exercises political leadership wisely without narrow partisanship. And that is to say, when you put this statesman in the pastorate, that he's got to think about the people and he has to think about his family and exercise the leadership. Many people have asked me, why? What, what attracted you to Howard Hendricks? Why did you feel like you wanted to marry him? Well, <clears throat> there were many reasons, but I guess number one was the fact that he knew where he was going. I had come to faith as a child, I had dedicated my life to Christ as a teenager, and I wanted, I wasn't even sure I wanted a man to clutter up my life. But the Lord showed me that I would never do it alone, and He brought this wonderful creature into my, well, He didn't really, I was sitting in an audience, and He was always on the platform. Uh, he used to be a song leader, and uh, He always, told jokes better than any other kids did, and so they put him up in front, and, and and so I knew who he was, but as I developed the friendship with him, I found that he had clear-cut goals as to where he was going, and he felt that God wanted me to go along with him, and I said, well, I think that's a good idea, and so we went together. But the question is, did he know what he was getting? You see, I saw him, and he is on a 90-mile-an-hour speed lane, knowing exactly where he's going. But I, I'm this little speed bump in his way. I am this prudent little gas-saving, you know, 40-mile-an-hour person, and he is rushing ahead. And so how do you put these two together? This is something I've been studying for a number of years and living it as we go. But in my book that uh, Joe mentioned, A Woman of Honor, I've kind of explored this in depth. Because while we in the Christian world have been very well informed as to the importance of men in, Christ in the Christian world, we sometimes are very uninformed about who women are and how they function. And you know, women, wives, are not like babies. Babies come without instructions, but wives come with instructions. Sometimes we do not read them. And you all know the story well. You have allowed the drama of Genesis 1 to pour over you, how the great creator God spoke light out of darkness, how he formed the heavenly beings and adjusted them in their orbits, how he balanced the earth on its axis, 
how he called forth the dry land and, and, and wrapped it in a beautiful wardrobe of vegetation, how he made all of the animals in his infinite creativity and put them on the earth and then placed his representative, the man into whom he breathed life and on whom he put his image and put him in charge of this. And we know well how he put him to sleep and surgically took uh, his side and handcrafted a woman and brought her to him and he was so excited. This made life be exciting and he had someone to dream with and laugh with and plan with and love and complete himself. She was the crowning jewel, no question about it, the crowning jewel of the creation. But then that cunning creature, the serpent, chose her for a dialogue. He came to her. We don't know why, but the scriptures in Genesis 3-6 give us some very clear indications. They give us three reasons why that woman talked with him, even though it was heresy what he said. He said that God didn't mean what he said, and she actually talked to him about that. And there were three reasons that she did this. First of all, she saw that that fruit was good for food. Now, this is no woman standing in a farmer's market holding a cantaloupe, you see. This is a woman who is surrounded with perfection and beauty, and she saw that the fruit was good for food. She didn't need groceries. She wasn't hungry. She saw the fruit, and she was a woman. And there is something that God put in us as women that, for want of a better term, we can call managerial skills. She wants to do something with what she sees. She, She sees a piece of fruit. You don't just leave it there. You do something with it. You make a variety for your next meal. You do something. And she had to do something with that food. We women today, if we are motivated by the Holy Spirit, can add a great deal to our world with our managerial skills. Uh, we, are, we can make life a lot easier for our husbands and families and communities. But if we are motivated by selfish interests with these managerial skills, well, I don't have to tell you there's trouble in River City because managerial skills out of control can wreak havoc. We women are, are incredibly um, moved on the inside by beauty, all kinds of beauty. And when we are, our world is improved. Many of you have beautiful homes because your wife has a sense of beauty. But if we are not motivated by the Holy Spirit, If it is with selfish interest, then we become more and more like the wicked witch who wants to pull down, demote others in order to elevate ourselves. But the third reason, and this one that I think really pushed her over the brink, was this insatiable desire to know. It was desirable for gaining wisdom. 
This need to know is very strong in women. I think it is possibly why Paul said so much in the New Testament to women about gossip, because we've just got to know who said it and who did it and why she did it and, and how, how it came about. We've got to get the story. So she had this need to know, and it was desirable for gaining wisdom, and that serpent said that if she ate that fruit, she would know good and evil. Sadly, she had no comprehension of the fact that she couldn't handle evil, but she wanted to know. Wisdom that is directed by the Holy Spirit, James tells us, is full of purity and peace and gentleness and willingness to yield and full of mercy and sincerity and it's without bias. It's beautiful. But wisdom that fails to take into account the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, breeds fear and suspicion and it is easily entrapped. And so we women are in trouble because of the way God made us and the way the, the tempter has twisted us. In her very enlightening book called Emotional Phases of the Woman's Life, Jean Lush, who is a writer and counselor, has detailed these phases that a woman goes through. And I often think that many men would benefit by reading some of this. She tells about the fairy tale beginnings. Girls in our society are programmed with romantic notions of how life is going to be as a young woman. But then typically she's hit with motherhood and all the challenges of that, the postpartum depression, PMS, all these hormonal highs and lows that we go through, and then midlife with menopause, and then the worst of all, that debilitating loss of estrogen. It's like draining the, the oil out of the crankcase. You lose all of your sense of well-being. And so a woman lives with all of this bodily function that affects everything else she does, and, and it's very hard for a husband to understand what this woman is going through. It makes no sense to him. But she's in the pastorate. She's not only married to him, she's married to this ministry. One writer, I think it was David Augsburger, said that there are two types of pastor's wives. They're the one who marries the man, she will go anywhere, do anything for this man, and the other one who marries the ministry, she just wants a vehicle into what she wants to do. So here you have a man and a woman, and this woman is so very, very different from the man. What's the man doing all of this time as a pastor? Well, Dr. Nathan Hatch, the professor of Notre Dame, who wrote a book you may have seen, The Democratization of American Christianity, wrote an article not long ago on the perils of being a professional. And as men in ministry, you have at least three characteristics that he details. He says that we enter this professional life at a very pivotal stage in life and that we are eager to please, that men are willing to burn the midnight oil and they want to play by the rules because this career 
this ministry, this profession that they're seeking is their identity. And so it's very, very important to them. Secondly, he said that Americans aspire to the professional label because the system that we live in rewards hard work rather than family connections. And so he will go to that over and over again in order to get those strokes. The professions, he says, are based on self-confidence and competence and success increases the danger of relying on your own expertise and ingenuity. But one of the most lethal aspects of the profession is that we come to believe that we deserve what we have achieved. And that sense of achievement has a hard time fitting in to the home and the wife. And so I would like to remind you this morning with respect to this statesmanship idea that there are probably four felt needs that your wife has. She's living with this professional person and she respects you so much. She is so proud to be yours, to belong to the orbit in which you move and have your being. But she has some needs. The first one is the need of understanding. She has this sense that she wants you to know how she feels. And sometimes we women are not very good at telling our husbands how we feel. We try and try and try. Like, wasn't it Dennis the Menace that was telling someone that Margaret the little girl that he played with, had spent all morning telling him that she wasn't going to talk to him anymore. <laughs> we women are good at that. Ron Allen, in his book, The Majesty of Man, talks about Jesus, who was never married, of course, an itinerant preacher in the company of men, and he reminds us that these men, that Jesus as a man taught and encouraged and strengthened women. He says, Christ the tiger scratched out a whole new approach to understanding humanity. Jesus, the single man in the company of men, also needed the company of women. We are to be together as brother-sister in Christ, and we are to work at learning to be together. Jesus was never maudlin, never indiscreet. He met the widow of Nain in her deepest hour of, of um, grief and loss in the loss of her son, but he restored her because that's his business, restoration. He accepted the actions of the sinful woman considered by many to be inappropriate, but he never lost his poise. He was understanding. But with that understanding has to come a second thing, and that is availability. And this is where it gets very, very tight, because when you're being pulled in all directions, it's terribly difficult to be available to your wife. Two weeks ago, we were in Europe and interacting with a number of men from and women from who are ministering in Eastern Europe. We heard about pastors over there that have 30 churches that they try to look after because they're not nearly enough pastors for the number of churches. 
and uh, they can't be available. And the wives feel this unavailability. But I am here to say that it doesn't always have to be physical proximity. My husband has traveled ever since uh, our children were young because God has called him in a number of different directions. But I've never felt that he was unavailable to me because he always let me know that his heart was there with me even though we may have been separate geographically. Jesus Christ, again, exemplified this. He was always available to the people who truly needed him. Uh, He understood that people have to have this leader, this spiritual statesman, available to them. Women in your church understand that, too. Women sit in your congregations and they fantasize about this successful, loving, wonderful man who is up there in the front. And uh, they think, if only I could have a man like that. But remember that your woman, your wife, may also be fantasizing, like the woman, you've heard this before, about the woman who dropped the note in the offering plate saying that she would like to have an appointment with the pastor. It was his wife. Uh, the, The wife that you're married to needs to have some time with you. And there are other men in the congregation. We're just sprinkled with scandal in the world in which we live. And not all of it is on the part of the pastors. Someone has said no matter how happily a woman may be married, it always pleases her to discover that there is a nice man who wishes she were not. And uh, it is kind of nice sometimes if a pastor's wife finds a man in the church who will give her time when her husband does not have time for her. So this is an area that we have to look at, availability. The third thing that she feels a great need for is serenity. Jesus always made people feel comfortable in his presence. That dear woman, sinner though she was, dragged before him in John 8, caught in adultery, and Jesus was the perfect gentleman. He did not even look at her. She was so humiliated. You can just imagine how she felt with all these people accusing her. And Jesus didn't look at her. He just stooped down and wrote on the ground. And then when they were gone, he spoke to her gently and pointed her to the light of life. This serenity is something that is very necessary for a woman. She needs to feel... resolved on the inside. She needs to feel that it's okay, that things are, 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 are peaceful. And it comes very largely from her husband and how he orders his life. But probably the fourth one and most important thing that she needs and desires is guidance. She needs to know which way to go. And, of course, this is very clear in the scriptures because God has made it, you can't miss it. Um, 
Cicero, I think it was, who said that the, the mark of good writing is that it makes it impossible to be misunderstood, and that's the way the Bible is written. It's impossible to misunderstand God's intentions, because in Ephesians 5, a man is told that he is to present his wife to God. This wife is yours for life. She has put her name below yours. Her identity is merged with yours. Her dreams possibly, probably, hopefully, are merged with yours. When I was newlywed and in the adjustment process, I was having a bit of a problem getting used to this, as I told you, 90-mile-an-hour man. And I once ventured to complain to my father My father came to know Christ in his early adult years. He was a big, expressive, uh, sort of unpolished gem of a man, did not have the benefit of higher education. But he was always a shoulder to cry on. He was always loving and warm to me, and I was complaining to him about how my husband didn't understand me, and he didn't give me time. He didn't listen to me, and so forth, and so on. And instead of taking me in his arms and saying, it's going to be all right, honey, he looked at me and said very lovingly, but very firmly, Jean, that man loves the Lord, and he loves you. Now you learn to live with him. You know, that was some of the best advice I ever received. Because that is exactly what God is asking me to do, learn to live with him. And for him to learn to live with her. Of all the people I've known in the ministry, some of the giants of the faith, it's a couple who are now in heaven, but you probably know of them, Dr. Jack and Mary Mitchell of Portland, Oregon. Some years ago, we were privileged to be with them, on a fishing trip. Dr. Jack loved to fish for salmon up in the Georgia Straits just off of Vancouver Island at a little place called Qualicum Beach. And we were on our way up there. And just before we reached the Canadian-U.S. border, we stopped to buy some peaches, wonderfully lush peaches. And when we got to the border, the guard said to him, do you have any food in the car? And he said in his inimitable Scottish brogue, yes, we've just bought some peaches. He said, well, you cannot take them in. And he, of course, remonstrated with him. What do you mean I can't take them in? I just bought them. They're beautiful. What's wrong with them? You can't take them in. I'm sorry, sir. Well, Dr. Jack was not to be outdone. He asked to see the supervisor. The supervisor came. He said, why can't we take the peaches into Canada? There's nothing wrong with the peaches. Finally, he learned that the Canadian government was worried about the possibility of some parasites in the pits of the peaches. And so not to be outdone, Dr. Jack pulled over on the side, opened his fishing tackle box, got out his knife, and started to take the pits out of every single peach. (laughs) And when he finished, he put them in the bag, And with a flourish and that twinkle that he had in his eye, he said, Now, sir, we will enjoy our fruit. And he gave him the pits, and off we went with our fruit. (laughs) 
And I thought, how much like that marriage is. We've got to get the parasites in the pits out of our lives and enjoy the fruit of marriage. We've got to learn that God put us together and that as husbands and wives, we are heirs together of the grace of life. As the wise man said, he that findeth his wife findeth a good thing. It's great that you are married, uh, but it's not always easy. But God always takes the long-range view. And someday, as a man, you will stand before him, and he will be holding you accountable and asking you, have you made her holy? Have you cleansed her with the word? Are you ready to present her to me spotless? And it's my prayer that you will be able to say, here she is, Lord. I got her ready for you. Thank you. You've been listening to Gene Hendricks. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.